yeah, I, I, I never enjoyed role-play games that were just, uh, just communicating some facts. Like so many role-play games are like, you know, the the duchy of of Kingdor makes twenty tons of grain per year. So who gives a shit? That's, that's no one cares. That's worthless to anyone. Um, yeah, I just want to be. I want to be made to be excited about. It. I want it. I want to. I want to read and play a role play game like I would read. Uh, I don't know, like a Jack Vance book or something. Hi, welcome to the Die 2 Podcast. I'm Gary Snow, and with me is Daniel Sell, the creator and publisher of the amazing little book and uh, series and IP, and I'm not even too sure what to call it, but Troika, um, which is a fantastic RPG that we're going to be talking about today, and uh, also an Any Award winner. Uh, so a lot of interesting uh, things that Daniel has done. So Daniel, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So uh, before we get kind of started, we always have to kind of do this. How did you uh, get started into this little hobby of ours, role-playing games and tabletop role-playing games in, in the first place? Um, I got into it uh, through, I guess, through fight and fantasy adventure books, the choose-your-own-adventure kind of things. Um, and then... Um, I think I was given uh, one of those TSR um, dungeon crawl. I think it's called Dragon Quest. I can't remember. It's something like that. It's not like a like a fold out dungeon board thing. You could basically play Dungeon Dragon Second Edition on it. Um, and then yeah, just kind of went from there. Didn't really. I didn't even play that much at that time because we didn't. It wasn't really a thing. People didn't really do role play games very much at the time. In the Final Fantasy books, I think I, I, we don't, we didn't have, we had our choose your own adventures here and I'm in Canada and mm -hmm. North America, but uh, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston, which I've, I stumbled across this years ago and it was very kind mm -hmm. of formational cool. for me, but um, it was basically a choose your own adventure and you would go through the little book and roll dice and that actually started the foundation of like your rule set for Troika, was it not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Troika is just a just a knockoff of Final Fantasy, pretty much. Um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, it's mainly just the fact that like fighting fantasy would would change as necessary between the books, so it's never really been uh, very uh, set, I guess. Other than the the strength, uh, stamina, luck, skill thing, which I'm a big fan of. I really like it. I think it's uh, it's all you need. Uh, and then when when did you actually start getting into role-playing games in the first place like i mean you at some point went discovered it and uh hmm. it started playing before you started creating do you remember like your first kind of time sitting down at the table uh i mean we, we, there was some like abortive starts with uh second edition D, &D uh and then when i was in my Late teens, I started playing uh, third edition with my friends. And that was, I suppose, the first like proper extended kind of engagement with role play games. I read a lot of them. But, yeah. So, were you always uh, into like science fiction, fantasy um, writing? Yeah, yeah, I loved it. it was, I mean, I was uh, I read a lot when I was a child. Um, we we're pretty poor, so it's like that's your choice. Go to the library. So we um that's where I got my Final Fantasy books from was the library. The library had loads of them. Um but yeah, that was that was um I was all over that. That was great. Fantasy and sci-fi stuff. And I mean a lot of people that end up playing, I mean, but between your home rule sets or homebrews and that kind of thing, you start making your own games or like looking at these clunky mechanics and going, Oh, I don't like this, I do like that. And do you remember that threshold where you said, you know what, I'm going to start actually like designing games? Was it like through adventure mm -hmm. design, or were were you the referee GM? Yeah, I was. I was always the GM. Um, I think it's the same for most people that end up doing this. But uh, but no, I was. I I never really like 
I never really like house ruling things. I like I running them as they want them to be ran, at least until, well, you know, like a long way into it. Like, um, because if you're gonna if you're gonna play someone else's adventure or game or whatever, you might as well. It's, it's uh, I like allowing it to to be in charge and see what that means. I mean, if you start off by changing things, you never know what what they're going for. So, yeah, especially with adventures, I very rarely um, mess with adventures at all, unless I unless you've got some specific where you want to fit them in in the game you're you're doing. But um, yeah, because it's like having another uh, GM at the table. It's great. Do you have? Did you have a favorite uh, that you were GMing um, at that time, or um, DMing? Uh, uh, adventures, we was. Um, I very rarely run an adventure more than once, I don't think. We, I had a fairly consistent group. Um, I remember like in, I remember like in, so there was one like campaign for Savage Worlds that I enjoyed. I can't remember what it was bloody called. The one where um, you start off as just, it's just it's a standard uh, adventure party fantasy world thing. And then after the first game, uh, Aliens Invade and take over the world and you, it turns into a kind of resistance fight i think that's great fun i enjoyed that a lot i think i ran that twice and that was just uh yeah it was cool had a nice a nice bite at the beginning and then i did a bit of digging on your blog uh what would conan do um which mm -hmm. i thought it was pretty fascinating and i could almost see your evolution moving into troika like at, i think mm. You correct me if I'm wrong, but the earlier posts were kind of like uh, more like prose and like poetry almost. Um, and then you started getting into game theory and then it just kind of sped up from there. Is that kind of the evolution of how you, like and that was G plus days and blogs days? And yeah, yeah, I, I um, yeah, I guess the, I mean, the blog was just uh, the blog was always just uh, uh, me to put up whatever I was doing at the time. Uh, it, was not, it was never had any kind of greater purpose than that. Uh, I think it was it was important to keep the blog very very loose, or else I would never do it. Like if I had to worry about it being good or or, or pertinent. Um, so yeah, it started off just with some uh, prose stuff because I mean that was I started the blog when I was still in university doing uh, my writing course, so that's just kind of what I was doing at the time. And then I think the uh, the blog started being more about role play games after I discovered G plus, and yeah, there's just that whole culture of just you know make stuff, make more stuff, keep making stuff, don't worry about it being good or bad. Uh, yeah, and then you know just made a bunch of stuff. And were you were you a fan of Conan? Is that why you chose the the name? Or uh, yeah, well, I did. A, it was oh, it was just a, it was a joke to myself um it's just, i mean it's it's no more funny than, than exactly what it is on the surface i mean it was just um i think it was like when i made the blog i for one of my one of my dissertations i did a a short stage play about robert e howard that was it that was why i i, I did that because um yeah it was i was making i was making a i was making a point that uh robert Howard and uh, Conan were kind of. Um, it, it seemed that Robert Howard would would often ask, "What would Conan do in his life?" And he just kind of went with that. Uh, that was funny. So, yeah. And <laughs> like the idea of having a fictional character dictating your life to you. And then you started uh, uh, Undercroft Magazine. Yeah, um, yeah, that was the first like publishing thing I did. Um, initially. I think the first issue was pretty much just an adventure I did. Um, I, did the, the, I drew it all as well, drew the maps and things. And I printed it on an old laser jet printer I had in my house. That didn't really work very well. Yeah, that went all right. And uh, did quite a few of those. Technically, they're still going, kind of, sort of. So. In when you were making those magazines, is that kind of where you started finding your voice as a designer? Um, 
in this space, like a writer creator in the role playing game world. And I noticed, uh, like, there's one post in particular that you mentioned that, uh, you know, you're running it at a loss, uh, if, and I think that was only into issue one, one, two, or three, but you know, you were committed to it. And do you ever mm-hmm. now, like, we'll talk about the success of Troika, but do you ever now kind of reflect upon that and go up? I almost gave up at that point and just said, you know, that's enough. Of oh, no, I, w- I would never have given up. I don't think. I mean, the, the, yeah. I mean, the, the Undercroft, if we published it today, uh, well, we will publish it again. We, we just, whenever we get enough stuff, we, we put one out. But they always run out of loss, really, because we pay people for being involved. And they t- they would, one issue would take years to cover the cost of it. And they often do. They're not expensive, but they also don't sell. So it's just, uh, it's just a fun little thing we do. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess in the beginning of doing the zines, the scale is different uh, to now, of course. Um, but we were we were we were selling, you know, double digits of them. But yeah, yeah. no, I mean, we'd never have given up. It was just a, it was just an outcrop of of the blog and G plus and all that stuff. And was that like the springboard into Troika? Like, how when did uh, Troika take shape in the in the first place? Um, I think I, I started doing Troika um, because I saw there was a new edition of the Advanced Fighting Fantasy Roleplay, and I really liked the original Advanced Fighting Fantasy Roleplay game. Uh, like, I was obsessed with those books when I was younger. The actual like because they made a, a role play game system at some point. It was it was very strange books, but yeah, there's a second edition, and at the time I was also kind of catching up with Planescape. Because when I was younger, I had I think two of the boxes, and that was it. Can't afford anymore. Can't find anymore. Um, so we had the Garth of those, those little box sets and they had lots of the Final Fantasy role-playing game and also the Planescape. They had lots of promise. There was lots of like empty space that you can imagine into. And then when you read into them more, like when you get the Planescape supplements or when you got the Alancia book, which is the last Final Fantasy role-playing book, you realise that the kind of, the potential was much more interesting than the actual uh, completion of that promise and it's just a little bit disappointing and that's that's why i did troika in the end because like the second edition of advanced fan fantasy was pretty much the first edition of advanced fan fantasy but just tidier which is fine it's i mean it's it's, it's exactly what it's supposed to be but um i wanted advanced fan fantasy but it delivered that original feeling of just being excited and wondering what's around, you know, the corner. That makes sense. And that may be a good jumping off point to just talk about. Um, I know it's been talked about before on different interviews you've done uh, and different analysis of Troika, but um, you're, the influence of, uh, and I saw one post in particular of the uh, Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. Yeah. yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. you... And in the post, and if you don't mind, indulge me here. I'm going to read off some of the the lessons you learned that you mentioned in your post. And if at any point you want to jump in and kind of talk about it or wait till the end, either way is good. Uh, So Gene Wolfe, the writer of uh, numerous science fiction, kind of dying earth, far, far future, Planescape-ish content. Uh, So here's the bullet list. Uh, It is okay not to make sense, to be obscure and referential. You don't need to lead the reader by the nose or particularly help them in any way. Um, Experimental forms can work if you throw everything into them. We are not just making lists of facts to be absorbed. We can make things that tickle an obtuse angle. Narrators matter, even in RPG books. A A narrator is a choice that we make. Create the weird as though it is part of the furniture. Do not point. It is okay to have a full three-act play in the middle of your work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this literally one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be weird, but have logic to it. Even if only you know how it connects, it should connect. Be unapologetically literate. 
anti-intellectualism and pop cultural absor absorption is a choice. So make it or don't. Don't allow yourself to be washed along because that's how it's done. Foreshadowing and slow realization is the greatest thing. When weeks later, a player goes, oh my shit, and links everything together in a montage of paranoia, then you have the gene wolfed it. Then you have gene wolfed them. So that's the end of your list. Um, and when I read Troika and how other people have looked at Troika, I mean, was that basically your guidance for making it? Yeah, yeah. I just, um, I, I mean, I didn't know at the time, I guess, what my my reading kind of tastes were. But it's just basically, I really uh, hang around in kind of new wave sci-fi fantasy, which I guess Gene Wolfe is part of. I mean, anyone who's friends with Michael Walker, that's this new wave, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and that's basically like the the um, the big thing for for new wave is just like you don't have to you know, be just a straight line to a story. Um, you can you can have, you know, texture and illusion and, you know, it's just, uh, I mean, they, they were, I mean, the new was also very experimental with like style and all that stuff. I mean, Jerry Cornelius books are still extremely weird. Um, and I think uh, like, like fiction has got less weird anyway um, in the last 20 years. So this is my big thing. Yeah, you know, I stand by those things. Um, yeah, I, I, I never enjoyed role-play games that were just uh, just communicating some facts. Like so many role-play games are like you know, the the duchy of of Kingdor makes twenty tons of grain per year. So who gives a shit? <laughs> that's that's no one cares. That's worthless to anyone. Um, yeah, I just want to be. I want to be made to be excited about. It. I want it. I want to. I want to read and play a role play game like I would read. Uh, I don't know, like a Jack Vance book or something. Just this kind of. I mean, like I mean, if you read, like, if you read like Jack Vance or, or like a, the Viraconian books or whatever, it's just like it's it's constantly just throwing things at you. It's just going and going and going and going, and. Like it's weird, but it always you know that it makes sense, even if you can't see that sense. Especially with like Gene Wolf, um, I, re I really, I really got it when it when I came to Gene Wolf because like it's all the new sun is extremely weird, and you really there is really no way to understand it properly. Um, but I mean, even Gene Wolf when he came back to do the like the guide to it, he said like he'd forgotten a lot of the the things he was referencing. Um, and the illusions and stuff, but like the point is, they were there. The thing you were reading was was true in in, in every way that it matters. It wasn't just you know just randomly picked out of the air and thrown together. Like it was a choice. It was a you know it was a, a composition, and that's that's all you need. That's that's how weird can make sense. Just it needs to be composed and deliberate in some way, and. Uh, yeah, and I found like I mean again like with the I mean my disappointment with Planescape, it was just it turned into a list of things. It was basically just a pitch, and then they turned it into every other roleplay game supplement that TSR did. Um, when I was expecting, like I wanted something like like a like the the Elric books or something, just you know constant stuff. Don't just stop every time there's something new and then write 10,000 words about it until you're just sick of hearing about it. Just to bring stuff up, throw it away, bring stuff up, throw it away. But yeah, that's what I want, make thing. Do you think it's a um, perhaps a bit of the problem of the industry is that, you know, you you feel like you have to support the, the main line with um, these splat books or, uh, you know settings and you know you're paying people by the word and it's just a, a natural flow of the industry that oh we need it like 200 pages so we have to like figure out what to put in those 200 pages or do you um, think it's um more of a philosophical design difference i i think i think the main problem is that it is just the the, the folk, i mean i imagine just like 
the book industry is exactly the same as role play games. So when you're looking at, you know, like whatever science, fantasy, fiction from the outside, you're just looking at the good stuff. I'm sure there is like 90% of it is trash, just pointless, awful, cynically created trash. So you can't say, oh, role play games should be more like Gene Wolfe. So that's an unfair um, um, comparison. I don't think role player games have even had a, a Gene Wolfe come along. Uh, so, you know, we're still very new, still finding our feet. And uh, the issue we're coming up against is that we are such a heavily commercialized industry that the, the most of the voices that come up are the ones who are commercial and safe. And more and more so, it's just, it's about, you know, just... IPs, even like the people who, I mean, if you think about like the the, um, the the medium to bigger size companies, you don't even know who wrote them. It's just a bunch of people, workshops. Uh, they have, they're made in the same way a sitcom would be, which is fine, but it's just, uh, it's not, not what I'm very interested in. When did uh, Troika start to gather steam as far as, uh, and a community surrounding it. Um, I think it's just it's just been incremental uh, progress from the beginning. It's it never had a, a moment where it was everyone's like, "Oh my god, this thing is brilliant." Uh, they just it was just you know I published it same way I would have published the undercrop. I published it as a little pamphlet, just just uh, printed a couple of hundred of them. And sold those and you know didn't sell amazingly sold some um and it's just sold a little bit more year on year consistently it's never fallen off it's always got a little bit bigger and that's just uh that's just how it's been going there's, there's never been we've never had that that moment where it just tips i don't think it's the kind of book that would ever have that kind of moment because um, it's just not uh, not that kind of thing. Well, well, perhaps maybe like it might not have been like a huge tipping point, but the tipping point of other people wanting to create in the world and the SRD and that kind of thing, like was there a demand from people to go like, hey, I want to create something in Troika. Do you remember like those conversations happening? Oh, I mean, I started off with it because like, um, oh, I, I I, I mean, nothing is going to, I mean, to be clear, Troika didn't, I didn't just like create Troika and then, oh, it's, people have started liking it. And doing, I have had to support it every step of the way. Like you, releasing something into the wild, it's, it'll just die if you just do that. But uh, I've supported it and I've tried to stay ahead of, you know, things in general. The, like the open, uh, the open, uh, copyright thing was just something I thought up one day, like because that was something I came up against. I was I was initially when I started Troika, I was very nervous about copyright stuff with it. Um, I had a few people being a bit weird to me about uh, Fine Fancy and whatnot, which is why Fine Fancy never got mentioned in the book because um, copyright's a weird thing. It's just the, the the rules around it are who has the most money and who's the most pissed off. So I thought if I just don't mention Final Fantasy. We'll just uh, we'll call it a draw, and we can, you know. Um, uh, where was I? Lost I was myself just, completely. I was just curious about the uh, the SRD and like how that. Oh evolved. yes, yeah. I might just meet it one day because it was it made sense. Like, why would I? Why would I not benefit from people being able to? To make things and that turned out to be quite a good idea um that's resulted in lots of stuff just means i don't have to be the only source of things and also like it, it tied in with my my thoughts about uh not worrying about a canon especially and uh, so yeah people could just make stuff and i mean it's, it's yeah it was just uh you know i thought it'd be fun I thought it was a good idea it's what i would want from a game to just you know be allowed. See, the thing is, uh, I actually spoke to a copyright lawyer when I first started because I was getting nervous about people being weird at me, and 
from that conversation, the the conclusion was um, like you can just you can copy whatever you could republish. Like the the, uh, the 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 thing that Wizards do, the um, Ode Open Game License. Yeah, it's nonsense. That's not that's not permission. That's you accepting an imposition from Wizards of the Coast. You never have to sign that or agree to it or anything like that. You can just remake Dungeons and Dragons number for number and they can't do a thing other than bully you it's it's they haven't got a leg to stand on uh, even a lot of their like um copyrights around their stupid words are, are nonsense but um as soon as you submit yourself to it you're kind of trapped in there it's a little little honey trap they make um so i mean anyone could have come along and just said well i'm doing my own choice thing then and and i wouldn't be able to do anything about it uh giving people permission saying i don't care do what you want it's it encourages people and it cuts off those first few steps of like oh should i or shouldn't i it's like you should you can please do and and it just uh you know and if people if people are inclined to make things they're gonna they're gonna end up making things for the thing that's the least resistance so i guess that's what happened there all the time yeah and i mean i've kind of been around the indie world long enough to see that you know inevitably when um at least my perspective is when uh indie designers are first starting and they're like first starting to make their games they're really worried about somebody ripping off their idea or ripping off their mm -hmm. rule set or whatever the case might be and you are a really yeah, good yeah. example of like building a community around it and um and i mean i've you know there's a philosophy of like you know sometimes you got to take your hand off the wheel and not try to control things so much you know it's like the surfer like letting the wave take them versus mm -hmm. like trying to fight it and um but with that said like do you do you what was the first couple um other creators that latched on to the troika brand and i before we ask answer that question the name troika where did that come from um it was i think it was when i was originally making because i People say there's an implied setting. There is an actual setting. Like I know the details of the setting. I like I, I run games in it, and I, I have all that. But the point was that I, I'm never going to publish that. Like that's just that's that's for me. But Troika was just a, a reference to a particular iteration of the city. Of the city had three layers at the time, um, and it was called Troika because of that. It no longer has three layers. It's different now, and that's fine. Plus, um, look, it's um, it's, an, it's a nice shaped word. <laughs> it's a good number of letters. It's punchy. It's um, a T is a good letter to start a word on. And the exclamation point is kind of, I don't know, it's a classic kind of new wave, 80s, 90s kind of thing to do. Just like put an exclamation point at the end of it. Right. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, so that's, that's where it came from. So back to the uh, the question was, uh, what was the first other Troika um, game or supplement that came out? Um, or first few, like other creators coming on board and going, I like this, I'm gonna jump on board with you. Yeah, there was a bunch of blogs that did stuff. Um, and I don't remember who. <laughs> See, the thing is, um, I don't remember at all anyone that did anything like there's no there's no standout thing it just kind of like crept up and then there was just stuff everywhere all of a sudden i don't remember any 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 particular person being the one to uh to stand up and do stuff and uh for better or worse i pay very little attention to what anyone else is doing anywhere <laughs> which is um which is it is it is <laughs> Well, and perhaps, and, and that's exactly kind of why it works. And and also the 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 world of Troika and the whole idea of Planescape, I mean, your approach and the world you've created, it really works well because almost anything is possible. So you never kind of mm -hmm. know what could come of it. Uh, I mean, the first one that um, jumped out at me was the uh, uh, Acid Death Fantasy. That's the, the first one that I saw outside where I was like, oh, that's interesting mm. and just that image on the cover especially was uh catching to me but that was luke gearing uh who also mm -hmm. has um 
a new one that either you're just about to kickstart um, through um, your Kickstarter Troika. Um, yeah. And that's called the big squirm. And we'll talk maybe yeah. a little bit more about that. But um, mm -hmm. as far as the, uh, the community that you've built up around it, um, I know uh, Tony Vicinda of Plus One EXP was, I don't know if he was harassing you or he was pressuring <laughs> you, whatever you want to call it. But he said, you need to do a Troika Fest. How did that play out? Oh, I, again, I had almost nothing to do with any of it. It was great. Uh, he was, he was, he was pestering, um, some of the people that work with me about it. And, uh, you know, his, his pitch was like, I'll, I'll do everything. Uh, just give you permission. I thought, yeah, it's great. Sounds brilliant. <laughs> my purpose, that's my kind of deal. And then he went and he did all these, yeah, I think I, I think I did an, I did an interview for it. And that was, that was about it. I don't really, um, I don't really do public games or anything. So I wasn't really, I wasn't really present. I think um I think Luke might have been for there for something. Um but yeah, it was just uh yeah, just just a little fun time that happened for some reason. But I don't even understand really. Uh it was nice. It was pretty incredible. And I mean Tony's uh you know an admitted fan of Troika and uh mm. he really obviously enjoys it enough to to the point where he organized this. And so from that uh Troika Fest uh through itch, um 129 games were created. And uh mm. that was an incredible amount, and they're so varied and they're so interesting, and um all because of the SRD and Tony and the world that you've created. And with that said, like, how, how do you now reflect upon the fact that, you know, you, you started with this little tiny zine and it's had so many legs and inspired so many creators that are now going on to create their own content and get into the publishing world. Do you, do you ever sit back and reflect upon that? Or do you just go, yeah, that's gonna, it just happened. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I I don't feel responsible so much as I just feel like I'm. Uh, I I care quite a lot about. I mean, like, so I don't pay attention to what anyone else is doing because I don't want to particularly be influenced by anything unless it like jumps out of me as being really cool. Like, like um, vaults of Van is wicked. It's great. Um, but like, unless something. Just harasses me with its goodness. I, I tend to just um, just let them be. But um, uh, what was what was, I, what was my point? I just got distracted by Volts of Arm. <laughs> well, it's just like the the community of that has been inspired oh, right. by yes. Troika. Troika. Um, I, I still I feel it's still very much an active kind of um, slog, kind of. I mean, you know, what, I've, what I've tried to do for the whole time is whenever I make a step forward, I, I, I like to put down signposts and, and clearly mark the path before I go on to the next bit. Because, yeah, so I, 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 I feel like I'm the thin end of the wedge for a lot of design stuff. I think I, I mean, I don't know. But the thing I'm, I'm most proud of that I might have done is... Uh, <laughs> With two things, like um, on the on the record, I invented the weather the weather flower, and that's everywhere now. <laughs> I, I demand my cut of any proceeds to come from weather flowers, X flowers, whatever it is they're calling them now. But um, yeah, and also just like um, uh, yeah, just just I think the, the 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 base level of where people start making things now has raised up from where I first started. And I like to think that I was something to do with that at the very least. Like people aren't making, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, on the downside, I think blogs have kind of fallen off as a result, but you know, people can just dive straight into, to, you know, you can print stuff at Mixam. You can like, you can go here to sell it here to sell it. These are the shops that you that will buy. We've got a list of shops that will buy your book, pretty much any book at least a couple of them from you so i mean if you've got if you got a list of 20 shops who will buy two three four five books from you that's a shitload of books that's a base level of of comfort you can have 
and uh, yeah, so I think that's changed. So I think I, I I still enjoy that and pushing forwards on that. I think there's there's several people now that have been doing offset printing that are uh, are doing it because I, you know, told them how. And like I think two of them are two of them at least are using my exact printers and my exact like um, agent the printers uh, to do it. Uh, and I like that. That's cool. I mean, the more people doing that, the better. Helps me. It helps everyone. Have you run into problems as uh, the UK and the Brexit and distribution and shipping and all those types of things? Uh, not really. I mean, America, the UK has got its shifty little deals with uh, America and Europeans have never been a big audience for me. I mean, now they're more annoyed than usual about shipping prices, but that's just how it is. Um, yeah, not really. Not a big problem. Uh, it's it's mainly just annoying. Yeah. Uh, Do you yeah. have a sense of where your audience is? You know, speaking of like the global market, like how much percentage is in the US versus UK versus Canada versus wherever, Australia? Um, Canada suffers from postage being pretty expensive. So but there's, there's, I have a lot of people playing in Toronto for some reason. Don't know what's going on there, but uh, good on them, I guess. <laughs> I have a retail actually on, on one of my, you know, one of my uh, lists of people who buy our things. And it's just, it seems to be like Toronto and Seattle, both quite big, <laughs> for some reason, and London as well. I think London is the, has the highest concentration. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's mainly Americans, I guess, who are buying it. Like, I mean, I sell probably half of everything goes to America. And then the other half mostly goes to the UK, a little bit going to Europe and some Japan and Australia stuff. And, uh, and, but, and then on top of that, there are... Hmm? Sorry, go on. Oh, no, sorry, you go ahead. I mean, there's also, like, we have distributors in America as well, so there's probably a larger number of Americans than, than what I'm seeing, because there's a lot of our... Like, Exalted Funeral are our kind of American distributor, and they buy tons of the stuff, so... Uh, I guess there's a few people there. Do you generally just send, the, like, and this is my naiveness of, like, the industry, do you just send a lot to Exalted Funeral and then you do the other direct that you do from your website? Um, well, Exalted Funeral have a uh, a distributor deal with us where they, they pay distributor prices. I mean... I mean, like you got your distributors who are above the shops, who then above the customers. So uh, they get their variant. The customers get the full price, and the, the retailers have a cheaper price than the distributors less. And that's what um, Exalted have. So Exalted can also then sell the shops and direct to people and whatever they want to do. Um, I, I also sell direct worldwide as well. Just you know, anyone who wants it. And are yeah. you? able to do it full-time now is that like uh or how long yeah, have i mean i've been doing it i've been doing it full-time for since for the next 2018 i think it's uh yeah it's been quite a while cool um so uh diving back into your blog you gave some tips and so we've covered a little bit of them um, as far as like what you would recommend for a new game designer. And it's a little bit older of a post, but you know, correct it. Anything that's changed over the time, because I'm sure a lot has, and I'll try to summarize them so we don't get too into the, the details, but here's some bullet points, make a website. Uh, the website uh, tells people that they, how they can buy your book if they want to and sells direct, which we've just talked about. It's important, but Very do you important. find, yeah. Jumping into that, do you find the whole distribution thing? Like, have did you ever consider I'm just going to do print on demand, or is it just taking too much of a cut? Uh, print on demand. The problem with print on demand is that you are you're hitching your wagon to someone else completely. And so, for instance, like if uh, whatever well, drive through raised their prices like they were going to recently, but didn't, I don't pay attention to it. But if they do that, then that's 
that's just your problem. You just have to deal with that. If you're doing your own thing and then someone says, oh, I'm raising my prices, you'd be like, okay, I'm going to look for alternative ways to do things, um, which is what a business should be able to do. I mean, if you're just doing print and demand, then you are working for the print the, the print on demand companies, essentially. Uh, they are they are your boss is taking the, the lion's share of the money. Also, print-on-demand books are, are rubbish. They're just ugly. And you can, like, anyone who's read books, when you hold a print-on-demand book, you can tell it's print-on-demand book. Like, there are books I've bought that weren't print-on-demand, like you'd buy them from Waterstones or whatever other bookshop, and you feel them. It's like, this was definitely printed by Lightning Source. I can tell. I mean, it's also the printers for drive-through RPG. It's like, this feels like a print-on-demand book. And lo and behold, you find it. And they find like, printed by Lightning Source in wherever it is they do their printing. So you can tell it. You can feel print-on-demand. Um, yeah, and actually, that was going to be my next kind of leading question is like how how uh, attached are you to like the quality of like books uh, as a avid reader growing up and going to the library? Like, how important is the actual physical copy and like the the color and all that for you? It's very important. Like, they have to be nice. Like, uh, I mean. Books, I mean, books are a tool and like the tools need to be usable and good at what they do. Like if you have a book that the spine cracks when you open it and it's like it pages fall out, then your tool is rubbish. Like your tool's not doing the job. You know, if your hammer shatters once you've done your 50th nail, what's the point of it? You just that's a liability. But if you do a nice book, like well, my books are not uh, special. I guess they are what was standard in, say, the 70s and 80s, yeah, before it got, they had better machines to do cheaper binding and whatnot. But I'm, I, I still, like, when I'm looking for like old fiction or whatever, or, or textbooks and things, you can still buy 70s and 80s and 60s and 50s books that are in perfectly good condition. Like, they look like they've been run over with a tractor, but the binding, is tight, the pages are all there. You know, it's just you make a book that will last and it will last. Like my books will last, okay, like, whatever, like our books, they'll last like 100, 200 years of like decent use forever if you don't touch them. And that's just, you know, that's the bare minimum for a book, I feel. Like these print on demand books will, will, will just fall apart. Basically, perfect binding, perfect binding, which is the one um, for those who don't know, is that they're just gluing into the thing often with like individual pages rather than folios, which are you know, it's just it's just bad. I've got like I have some um, pulp books from the sixties that were perfect bound, and they fall apart like crazy. Like the pages mm. are just basically loose in a binder. It's terrible. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's quite important. Yeah, it's uh, always risky, like you, especially with collectibles like uh, RPGs, which many people like to do, mm -hmm. especially if it if you hope that it has legs. Uh, the next bullet, uh, Facebook, Instagram ads, they're cheap and ludic ludicrously effective. Use your nice artwork and drive people to your website. Um, and you tried uh, Google ads, but they're not great for you, is the well, bullet. Nah. That has changed with time because, like, I mean, that's something when I first started out with Facebook and Instagram, Facebook and Instagram ads were very different, and also I was not as good at them. I do them myself still. Uh, I had an agency doing them for a while, um, and then I went back to doing them myself. And without going into what is a bottomless subject, which is profoundly boring, I hate it, but it's just it's one of those things you have to do. Facebook and Instagram are no longer as powerful as they used to be for various boring reasons. They're definitely not as cheap or as effective. Um, Google Ads are great, very, very cheap, but they only work once there is demand for your books. You will not create demand for Google Ads or Bing Ads or whatever. You can create demand for Facebook and Instagram ads, but you cannot. It's, it's just the nature of them. It's it's an endless it's an endless subject. Like getting getting ads, even if you spend like like ten pounds a day on ads, maybe just like a, a modest amount, you'll 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 benefit from them. And it's just it's it's promotion you don't have to do yourself. And social media 
promotion, organic grassroots promotion doesn't work and hasn't worked for a long time. Uh, but when we do these, like I'm doing my, my Kickstarter at the moment for the Big Square, I pay a lot of attention about uh, to the boosts that we get. So I track the, uh, the number of pre-launch followers and I roughly have an idea of when things happen. So like when social media posts go out that we do, I can see how many people come. And it's, it's, it doesn't work. You do not get attention from, from social media unless you happen to go viral, which I don't think anyone can rely on. Unless you pay money. You have to pay money and then you'll, you'll see a reliable trickle of people. I mean, the best thing is, I don't know if I mentioned it there, but the best thing you need to have, which is more important than any of the other things, is a newsletter. As soon as you make your first word, get a bloody newsletter. They're the most powerful thing, and they will, they will keep you solvent. Well, and that's, you know, uh, good advice as far as, um, like, mail lists and that stuff. Do you recommend um, any particular mail, like MailChimp? Uh, there's, you know, probably hundreds yeah. out there. By I've now, used... But- I've used MailChimp on and off for since the beginning, and MailChimp's just is fine. It's, I've never had any complaints about it. It's like I sometimes get drawn away by other people with promises of being better than MailChimp, and then I always end up going back because MailChimp just works, doesn't cause me any fuss, isn't crazy expensive. Plus, it's free until you have like I think two thousand people. Most people will never need to worry about that. Yeah, it's great, and I I don't know if this is too uh, insider knowledge, but do you have a number of how many people are on your mail list just to give people reference, like starting out to go, Oh, I'd love to get to that level one day. Uh, well, we have, I mean, there's, there's different layers of it, I guess, cause it is, um, you have your kind of bank of people you are allowed to contact. Uh, and that is larger than my, my mailing list is people who said, talk to me whenever you like. That's what the mailing list is. And that's about 5,000 people. And then I have my list of people who can be contacted through itch and drive through, uh, who have agreed to receive mail from there. And that's something like, uh, 65,000 people on itch and drive through are, I can contact uh, in a pinch, but they're not newsletter people. So they're just through the publisher side of things that you can announce yeah. a new product or whatever that those find- 65,000 people are slightly weaker than the six, uh, whatever I said it was yeah. five, 6,000 I have on the newsletter. They're a better audience than the huge number of people because they are people who've come and asked to hear your nonsense. So. And I, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a subscriber to your newsletter, so I'm well aware of it. And you just tweaked the uh, question I had for you that the the ring of pigs dancing around who <laughs> was that your idea who where did that come from? Oh my uh, my partner made it. It was it's based on a is it Matisse. Sorry, uh, I can't remember who the artist was. Who's the pigs based on? Well, who's the artist the pigs were based on? From the main one the pig logo. Matisse, 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 yeah, yeah. It's based on a, on a Matisse painting, quite a famous one, and uh, the, the 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 people dancing and the pigs are because I just I've always had a recurring I had a recurring nightmare until I was in my teens about pigs and they always just feature us as uh, generally um, um, evil creatures. <laughs> things i do well it's actually funny i was just in new york and i think i saw the matisse painting and i went when i saw it i was like Mm -hmm. oh i wonder so i might have uh, answered my question yeah it is it is a reference that matisse painting um cool so yeah uh so sorry i got a sidetracked here um and uh, (laughs) maybe just uh skipping down a couple because i think you answered a lot of them um if you and this is partly why I started my channel because you know my audience is new designers or people that want to know more about the industry, and if you do not know something, ask someone who does. It can save you a lot of time and money, and uh, you know the wisdom that you're passing along. But on the way, like, have how have you found other creators, maybe more senior than you, or other people that are doing different things, to be able to reach out to? Um, just if, if someone's made a book that you like or is doing something you think it's cool, you can just ask them. Uh, 
The worst thing that'll happen is they just don't reply or take the fuck off, and that's fine. <laughs> then you've learned something, you know. Um, and it's good, and it's good to know. Um, it's good to contact these people while they have no vested interest in being nice to you, whether they're nice people or not. So, like, a lot of people will just be friendly to you based on how they think you can be helpful to them and, and it's so it's good to get in there early and uh, and find out who's who's worth you know who's a cool guy who can you can you know just uh, most people will help you quite readily i've i don't think i've often come across anyone who's not really happy to be like, oh, yes, you can do this, and this is how you do it, and you should go here and talk to this person, and uh, here's an email address for this guy that helped me do this, and you should do that. Yeah, it's just, I think a lot of people don't. I mean, because I I often get emails from people, really long, rambling, terribly, terribly polite emails from people. Um, And it just, I don't know, it just kind of... uh, made me think that there's probably quite a lot of fear with, with talking to people who, who they perceive as doing better than them. Uh, um, yeah. The next one, Kickstarter is cheap advertising. Don't let it get, don't let it get you too focused on it. And now you've done a few Kickstarters. Is that still true? Yes. Um, at, at the beginning, it's true. I think it changes over time and it changes depending. I mean, at the moment, the economy, how it is, um, Kickstarters are much more important than they used to be, uh, just because everyone's spending less money now. It's, it's, there's a massive downturn across everyone. So anyone who's having trouble right now, yeah, everyone is, is suffering the same thing. Um, all, all the people I speak to, people who have a little shop, people who have bigger shops than me, it's 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 everything's down a lot. So don't you know, worry, but don't beat yourself up. Um, but yes, Kickstarter's, Kickstarter is very important still, or, or your equivalent crowdfunding, although really it's Kickstarter for now. Backerkit might start doing crowdfunding, and that might do some damage to Kickstarter, but realistically, it's Kickstarter. I think a lot of people, in their first Kickstarter, will be like, oh, my Kickstarter's going to make uh, £100,000, and it's going to solve my problem. It won't. It won't. Like, um, you will not be that project that does magically well also all those projects you see that do magically well that come out of nowhere and make a million pounds they didn't do it magically they did it because they have advantages you don't know about um you know i i mean they could be anything they could be many things they could have investment capital they could have really one of them could have used to have been an advertising executive and knows exactly what they're doing anything Almost never do these things happen by accident. So if you don't know exactly how you're going to make £100,000, you're not going to make £100,000. But you will make enough money to make your project and you will learn how to do better next time and you'll build your mailing list and you'll build your skills and it will just get better and better and better and better. So, yeah, don't get too caught up in how much you think and hope it will make. Uh, just just do it get the advertising going and and get on with it yeah and you uh did the numinous edition the one i've been holding up periodically throughout the uh interview right in the height of the pandemic um do you think that benefited or or did it just happen at the time and it didn't matter like you didn't actually plan it the the kickstarter for the numinous edition was a year before the pandemic and then the pan i think it was you Something like that. And then the pandemic only benefited Roblox games. In general, economic downturns and and worldwide uh, uh, terror benefit um, the entertainment industry just because we're not holidays, we're not, you know, fancy food. We're cheap and permanent and reusable and people like that. So pandemic was great for business across the board. Everyone was, was on a massive upturn. Uh, I mean, it's a good pandemic, but now we're having a massive crash because everyone, you know, war, famine, probably, or somewhere, and so on. But it'll come back, it bounces back year on year. I mean, I've been, even before this, like, you know, seven, two, six, you would see these kind of oscillating um, sales and interest and whatnot. And just uh, keep going. 
have you noticed like i mean you kind of alluded to it a few times now that is do you tie the down decline in sales with the decline in the pandemic or is it just other things happening shipping um just general interest in role-playing games oh no it's 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 very very strictly related to the pandemic um so when when people it's also summer summer is murderous for books and games and things you do not do well in summer any summer you do not do well winter's great christmas is brilliant so just you just gotta hang on and you gotta i think it's also a thing an important thing that a lot of people who first start out stop looking at your daily numbers and how you do it just look at just look at the last month and then and then just kind of work from there because you just get obsessed with with what's happening day in and day and I mean, even some months are just some months are just bad some months are amazing yeah, you just gotta just all the while just keep trying to make good decisions and then they'll they'll pay off down the line in six months time you'll 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 they'll bear fruit have you been doing it long enough now that you kind of like kind of know your cycles like ups and downs and summers and then like timing kickstarters in congruence with that i mean i suppose that the i know what i should do i don't do those things because it requires a level of organization and forethought that I don't have. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm aware of these these dips and, and peaks and things that will happen. Uh, they're still, I mean, to this day, they're still upsetting. <laughs> and uh, but it's just it's just how it is, and you just need to just 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 travel through it. And uh, one other, there's a couple of bullets that we haven't kind of talked to. Um, the one that really stuck out at me and this is my lack of business sense um because for me mm-hmm. and probably like many others you just want to create the thing right you don't you want to get live and comfortably and and that kind of thing but you should mark your book up around 10 times the physical cost if you want to eat if 10 times the cost is too much then you need to pay less for making your books and offset printers are great which we've talked about but uh that 10 times is that uh still hold true yeah pretty much um 10 times is 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 pretty much what you what you need to do and it's more complicated than that obviously but just 10 times is, is a is a short version of it um I mean, if you're making a um a uh you that side very loud for you i can't tell <laughs> There's, there's people wondering why shouting at each other. Sorry. London. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, yeah, 10 times, 10 times is a, is a sensible, safe number that you will do okay from. That gives you a lot of room to budget for advertising, royalties, taxes, fees, all that nonsense. If you're just doing like times two, you'll, you'll, you're just making a book for fun, which is fine. You can absolutely just make a book for fun. But if you want to to eat from your book 10 times, and 10 times should be a reasonably priced book. Like any book you see, like there's those, I don't know how much, uh, know how much an airport book is now, like $5.99 or whatever. Um, chances are that is marked up 10 times at least. Uh, they're very, very cheap to produce. Books in general are very, very cheap to produce, and they should be very, very cheap to produce. Um, there's less true at the moment because of the war and wood comes from Eastern Europe, at least for us. I mean, I know people do not print books in America because American printing prices are insane. So it's all China or Eastern Europe and Eastern Europe is a mess and China is locked down. So it's a bit different at the moment. In general, so that's also a good way for you to realize that your, your print on demand books, are you're being robbed. But when you're paying like three, four, five pounds to print your ten pound book, that's not sustainable. Unless I mean, well, I mean, it is. I guess if they're handling everything, if they're doing the distribution and selling, then they do okay. Like there is um, the guy whose name I've forgotten who does the print on demand Dungeons Dragons stuff. Who's got a Kickstarter out at the moment? Shepinek, I forgot his name. Did Scarlet Heroes and all that. Don't know if you. Mm, no, not ringing a bell. Man, so, so someone will someone will recognize this. Fellow here is that guy. Google him if you're hearing this. But like, he do, he does everything print the demand. He does really well. Like his business model is it's great. 
I mean, but he was just a single person on his own for the most part doing it and working with freelancers. So it's, it's a different model, definitely a good one, just not the same as mine. So, uh, another, another bullet you had was hire an editor and trust them. Now, this is a, an area that I was kind of curious about, and it's not to say that you have a lack of editing in your books or anything mm -hmm. like that, but it's your books seem to be almost artistic in an artistic impression of you, what you're trying to convey. And, and I wanted to know about your relationship with the editor and how that plays into that artistic representation. Um, I mean, it, I mean, editor is a, is a really vague word when it get, comes out because there's different kinds of editors, obviously. Um, sometimes you need a developmental editor who will come in and say, this bit doesn't work, this bit change, you should change this bit, this is blah, 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 blah. Uh, Sometimes you just want a line editor who will just, you know, commas, full stops, spellings and things. I mean, you always need a line editor, to be clear. You definitely need a line editor. If you don't think you need a line editor, you need it even more. Um, developmental editors, I mean, that's... It, it can be seen as an indulgence, I guess, for a lot of people, and it is. Uh, but they're useful sometimes. Because even if it is, even if you're a developmental editor and they come in and say, I think this bit's not working, you should put it there. If you say no to them, say, no, I think you're wrong, you at least have to have thought about it and in, at least in your head defended your choice. And if you go to them and say, no, I think you're wrong, I'm not going to do that, that's fine. They're getting paid either way. They're not like, you know, oh, I, I, I stand by it. Like, that's great, but, you know. <laughs> It's uh, yeah, just you know, get get a, get a nice relationship with them, trust them, and uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean do everything they say. It just means that you know they're not. It's not a fight that happens with them. It's that they're saying things and you're reacting to them. Whether you do them or not, it's your your prerogative. Um, the next bullet is, and we don't. There's a, a bunch more, and we don't want to like mm -hmm. exhaust you too much. But read fewer RPGs. They're a circle, and you talked about that earlier about how you're not paying too close of attention. Yeah, uh, in role play games. The problem with role play games in general is they are. Uh, they, I mean, they just they just they just look to each other, and. A lot of them, not all of them, obviously, um, but it's just they have a very limited pool of inspirations and and sources that they draw from, and it's very very obvious that that's what's happening. Um, and if all you read is role play games, you just it's just it's just going to be boring. You're just not going to do anything interesting, I don't think. Um, you need to be bringing in like new material from the outside and uh, and and rendering it down into into new ideas and things. Um, what's, yeah, the, you know, what's the last game that sorry, kind no. of inspired you though that you did uh, you said where like it's just calling to you and you finally went oh wow okay I'm gonna check it out and it it was just like off the charts for you as far as like this is good. Um. I mean, there are things that I like, uh, things that like, things that make me envious. Uh, I don't remember the last one. Not to say there isn't, I just don't remember it uh, off the top of my head. Well, I didn't mean to um, put you on the spot because that is always a tough No, no, I'm just, there's like... I, I don't generally buy roleplay games anymore. Like, um, right. It's a very boring answer, but I think the last roleplay game that I read that I was like, oh, well, the last roleplay game book that I read, I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm really envious of this, was Teagle Manor um, by the Judges Guild people. And just because it's just, it's so old and brave and and just reckless, it's just so, it's wild that someone could write like that. It's just so, um, I don't know, it's just, it's just got a lot of energy in it. It's not checking itself constantly and it's just broad and huge and, and crazy. And that was the last role play game I read that I was impressed with a lot was the first edition of Pendragon. Yeah, I read that uh, this year sometime. I got a copy of it and it's just so small and so big at the same time. It's just this, this 
it's just uh, yeah, it's just like it's just this little box full of crazy, crazy potential. Uh, and it got the same kind of treatment as as Planescape did. It just got big and bloaty as the additions went on. But just that that one little box just has everything you need in there. That's crazy. It's great. Cool. Well, as we wrap up, um, I'll have a bunch of links in the show notes of like things that we've talked about, uh, your, all your social media accounts and your website and Kickstarters, but, um, just tell us about the big squirm. Cause that's the, the new one coming up. Um, mm -hmm. and we're gonna, this might be kind of mid campaign, but hopefully you get that mid campaign bump from it. Hopefully a little <laughs> bit, just talk to us how so, that came to be and what your plans are for it. Um, the Big Squirm was originally written because I asked Luke to write a Troika book and he said yes. So the Big Squirm is what, what happened and it's the first adventure kind of, well, I mean, the, the Troika has an adventure set in Troika, but Big Squirm is set in Troika and it is a kind of a hard-boiled, uh, you know, pounding the streets uh, detective adventure, which I think is is funny um it's just as a concept it's a it's a fun thing and yeah so they're they're investigating a uh, a case of worm fraud essentially that a bunch of rich people invested in scarf worm futures and all the scarf worms ended up to be fakes so the players are being hired by the various factions who have lost or gained money in this in this um gigantic fraud and yeah and then there's they have a very uh uh convoluted crazy time getting to the bottom of various things or not as the case may be and yeah so so it's quite a quite a big adventure a lot of it cool well uh, Daniel, I want to really thank you for joining us today and uh, sharing a lot of your wisdom. I think uh, you know the, the, <laughs> yeah. your 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 environment or community that you've created um, is uh, really cool. You have a lot of uh, interesting people working on interesting products, and so you should be commended for uh, fostering that kind of community. So uh, well done, thank you. and. Uh, and if anybody's out there that's watching this and wants to get into uh, Troika, all the links uh, will be in the notes and uh, check out the SRD and what you might be able to do with it and get your first steps into publishing as well as uh, maybe there's going to be a Troika Fest too. Maybe Tony's going to see this and get inspired again. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, anyways, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate you joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. <laughs>